I got a, a couple of different directions to go, and uh, we will just see where the flow takes us. That's all right with you. I didn't really plan on continuing. Well, I had just had a burden to share a few things the last session, and uh, <laughs> that went places I really uh, I had felt, but really didn't have in my mind. It was in my spirit, not my mind, and so. Right now, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not predicting where we go, but uh, I do want to talk to you about this a little bit. Um, and, and I really kind of feel the same flow, even though when I start, you're probably not going to recognize it as the same subject, but it kind of is. Uh, there's a lot of things we talk about that are obvious to the intellect, but the understanding of those things have never made it into our heart. Just letting you dwell on it a little bit. Over the years, so many times I've asked somebody, well, how about this? Do you know that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. And you listen to them, they can explain it to you. But the problem is the knowledge, the understanding of what we're talking about never got out of their heads. What you know doesn't change you until it gets out of your head into your heart. And that's called understanding. And the two things that are so prized so highly and, and talked about so positively in the book of Proverbs is understanding and wisdom. Knowledge, a lot of people have knowledge, but they don't have understanding and they don't have wisdom. And, and, and probably this is oversimplifying it, but if you don't mind, I'm just going to oversimplify it for a second not really going to get into some great depth on this because I, this is not where I expect to stay. But knowledge deals with the head. Understanding deals with the heart. Wisdom is when all of that finally gets into your spirit. Now, again, that that's oversimplified. It's not quite that cut and dried, but in basics... The basic of all of this, uh, that, that's a really simple way to understand that. So, we know a lot of stuff. We know stuff. We can even talk about stuff that we don't understand. And the stuff we know doesn't, doesn't affect our lives. Doesn't affect our conduct or attitudes or whatever. But when it becomes understanding, it begins to change us. And when understanding gets into our spirits and becomes wisdom, now we walk in a completely different realm than we've ever walked in before. When it gets to wisdom, we understand things. And so if I make the statement to you, what's called the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, every last one of us would say, I know that. Yeah, I know that. 
But let's, let's find out if we know that. Because if you know that, then that defines how you treat other people. So the question is, do you do unto others like you would have them do unto you? As you want them to, to do unto you? Or do you do unto others like they've done unto you? Just, just a little bit of a change. At first listening, it sounds exactly the same, even though it's exactly the opposite. One is proactive, the other is reactive. In the reactive, I do to others like they've treated me. You're going to treat me like that? That's how I'm treating you. That's reactive. Which is never of God. Never. It's never of God to treat others like they've treated you in the negative. Now, obvious, if somebody treated you well because they're practicing doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you, then that should be an encouragement for you to treat them in the same way. But, of course, it's not really a response to how they treated you. What it really is is you treating them like you want to be treated. I've, I've caught heat over the years for how... <laughs> You know, a, a, a lot of folks think I pastor like I minister in the pulpit. I've had people say, well, I've heard people say, Man, I don't want to go talk to him. How you minister to a crowd is completely different than how you minister to an individual. It's completely different. With a crowd, you have to be direct and, uh, with a crowd, you have to preach at the lowest common denominator. And I'm not talking about intellect. I'm talking about spirituality. But one-on-one, we minister to people right where they are, and we can be much kinder and much long, much more long-suffering. And I, I, I have people who, have, who are upset with me today. One particular case that from long ago, where the wife didn't like how the husband was treating her. And when I tried to help her understand her part in it, that I didn't agree at all with what he was doing, but there, the Bible says a soft answer turneth away wrath. And I simply was trying to share that. Well, I became a horrible person because I would not, I I didn't take this person out of leadership. I didn't take this man out of leadership because I didn't agree with what he was doing. I didn't agree with what she was doing either. Why? Why do I do that? Why did I do that? Why have I done that many, many times? 
because my first rule is if I, if you allow me to do this with you, if you allow it, and I'm not going to, I'll leave that up to your interpretation. If you allow me to respond like this, I want to treat you exactly like I would like to be treated if I was in your situation. That's why if somebody comes to me with sin and they're all distraught and upset over their sin, (laughs) most of the time they're very shocked with the fact that I want to deal with it, but keep it covered. Not, it's not hypocrisy. It's not embarrassment. I just, I want to treat them like I want God to treat me. I don't want all of my faults and failures broadcast to the world. I'm going to tell you what, you know, the scripture says some men's sins go before them to judgments and judgment and other men's sins follow after them. I want all of my sins to get to judgment before me so they can all be covered by the blood because when I get there and he plays the recording of everything uncovered, everything that has not been covered by the blood for all of all living resurrected beings, and we have, and we have time, you understand. There's plenty of time. It's eternity. And he plays the recording of all of my thoughts and actions and all of that stuff I've left uncovered. And he he lets the whole world hear how I've lived and what I thought and how I treated people. The uncovered stuff. I, I I really want that tape to be blank except for the good stuff. I want his recording to be blank except for the good stuff. And so therefore, <laughs> blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. <sighs> the scripture says in the New Testament, quoting another verse in the Old, said, uh, love covers a multitude of sins. So over the years, the policy has been, my practice and policy has been, if God hasn't exposed your sin and you and I are talking about it, this is where it's going to stay, right here. If he's exposed it, then we'll deal with it as something exposed. If he hasn't exposed it, this is, stay, this is staying right here with us. I, I started to say this to first session about the couple that I was counseling sometime in the recent past, somewhere on the North American continent. And, uh, and, and I said to them, you know, when you're, when you're, when someone is ministering to you in these areas of difficulty, God gives them special grace. Because I, I, I know people think it's the case, but it's not the case. I don't stand in the pulpit or sit on the platform and look at people and remember all the stuff I know about them. That's the grace of God. I don't look at that. Because why should I look at something? Why would I even want to look at something that Jesus has covered with his blood? So don't look and say, well, I know all the stuff you've done. No, no, no. No. 
No. I know this is really simple. It's really, really simple in the brain. But it's not real simple for the heart. To treat somebody like you want to be treated. Not as a response to how they're treating you. And if you don't believe that your heavenly father loves you enough to let you have many opportunities to test to see how far along you are in that, (laughs) then you just don't know him very well. You don't know him very well. It's very difficult when you know something that's going on and you see it destroying lives and you'd love to get right in the big middle of it and fix it. And God says, nope, leave it alone. I'm testing hearts. Boy, that is really hard. Especially when people find out what was going on, they want to know why you didn't do something about it. The Lord never stops testing your heart. Not because he doesn't trust you, but because he helps you. Because no man knows his own heart. No human being knows their own heart. And if God doesn't let you go through things where you can look at your attitude, your actions, your thoughts, your desires, and compare that to the Word of God, then you have no idea of really where you are in all this. I don't know my own heart. I don't know my own heart. Guess what? If I don't know my heart, you don't know my heart either. Never ceases to blow my mind when people do things, react to things based on what they think somebody else's motive is. Motive is not of the head. Motive is of the heart. And most of the time, we don't know what our motive is. It takes some uncovering. Uncovering. It takes some... And and the Lord doesn't uncover it. We uncover it. We uncover... It's uncovered to us by our reaction and what we do with things that come our way. Some that are major and some not so major. But our reaction to things pulls the cover off our hearts so we can go, Oh, look at that. It was uh, 1984. And... uh in fact, it was February of 84. And I was sitting in my office in the building that used to be. It was about a half hour before Sunday night service. And I'm feeling uncomfortable. And I... I don't know what's going on. About 
20 minutes before church, I had my wife get Sister Peggy Holston. She walked in the office. She said, what's wrong? I barely got out of my mouth. I, I'm, I got some pains in my chest. I don't know what my face looked like. I don't know what my color looked like. But she absolutely just grabbed the phone and called 911. And I'm protesting. No, 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 no. I'm not that bad off. She didn't. She just ignored what I was saying. Called the ambulance. So here I am. It's 20 minutes to church. There's nobody else expecting to plan to preach. And I'm wheeled out of here on a uh, gurney into an ambulance and t- rushed to the hospital. So during church, I'm not in the pulpit. I'm in a hospital bed hooked up to IVs and EKGs. And they're checking all this stuff. I didn't know what was going on with my heart. After they uh, allowed me to go home later that evening, I went back two days later for a stress test on a treadmill. And the, uh, the cardiologist said to me after reading the results, he said, Reverend, he said, you got the heart of an athlete. Let me tell you what you do have wrong. I said, I'm, I'm ready now, okay. He said, you got stress. And he said, stress will kill you, just give you a heart attack, kill you just as bad as heart disease will. He said, I don't know where all this stress is coming from, but you, got, you need to do something about that stress. I didn't know what was going on in my heart. I needed, I needed situations and expertise to diagnose what was going on with me. You and I don't know what's going on in our heart, naturally or spiritually. We don't know. Uh, a few years ago, I got a helicopter ride. Uh, they came to the house, tried to get the pain under control, couldn't. They gave me a nitroglycerin tablet and put me in the ambulance, and I still had pain, and they they gave me a, a shot of nitroglycerin. That didn't bring it under control. Took me to the emergency room, and they were checking stuff, and, you know, I, I just had pain, and they ran all these tests. Next thing I know, I'm being wheeled to a helicopter and taken to Washington Hospital Center uh, for a um, heart catheterization. Pushed me ahead of all the scheduled people, put me in there. And, of course, they cut me open down here and ran that line up through my body and into my heart and got a good look around and and uh, I remember, I, you know, you're kind of out of it, thank God. But I was awake. I could hear him talking. And I heard that doctor say, this is amazing for a man his age. He has zero buildup in his arteries. So after I came out of that, you know, and back then you had to lay absolutely bored f- flat in that hospital bed for 24 hours because they didn't want that to start bleeding and you bleed to death before they could do something about it or whatever. So 24 hours I had to lay there after that heart catheterization. I I had a lot of fun. My entertainment was I would watch the uh, pulse and blood pressure monitor and see how far down I could get it to go. (laughs) 
uh, slowest I was able to, get, able to get my pulse to go down by absolute total calmness was down to 46. Uh, that was my record. I got below 50 several times, but that was, as, that was as low as I could get it. I got my blood pressure down to like 95 over 50 one time. That was as low as I could get that. But that was my entertainment. All I had to do was just think a little bit, and it was all back up to normal. But I, I just laid there and watched it and just just slowed my breathing way down and got really relaxed just see how far down I could take it. And that, that really was my entertainment. But when he came in the next day, he says to me, the cardiologist, he said, uh, Reverend, you, you didn't have a heart attack, but the, I, we know where the pain came from. He said, this, this wasn't your arteries, it's the small capillaries in this part of your chest. They were spasming. They were spasming. Well, I had chest pain. I had it. I didn't know what was in my heart. You don't know what is in your heart. And this is going to be a strong statement, and I'm trying to help. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck or be hurtful. But only a fool believes they do. So the Lord lets us go through things to bring stuff out. I mean, I, some of you, uh, you're, you're not going through, through this particular trial, but others of us, we, we have for, some of us for many years. It's called marriage. Marriage all by itself is capable of bringing stuff out of your heart that you have, you, you could hide from everybody else. Marriage is able to do that. Nobody can get closer to you and nobody, than your mate. And it's not, it, it's harder to hide yourself from your mate than anybody else because you can't really do that. Because we tell our mates stuff that we don't even know we're telling them. Just by look. <laughs> I remember years ago, I'd say to my wife, what's wrong? Nothing's, nothing. Well, I was young and stupid, so I made that a big deal. I know something's wrong. What's wrong? Nothing. So that would become an argument, which only made whatever was wrong worse. Finally, we found a way to have peace. I said, look, when I know something's wrong and you tell me nothing, I feel like you're lying to me because I know something's wrong. So rather than saying to me nothing, which is not true, I can accept the answer. I don't like it, but I can accept the answer if you'll just say, I'd rather not talk about it. That's true, and it expresses your feelings, and you have a right to your feelings, and I may not like the fact you don't want to talk about it, but at least you're acknowledging that what I'm saying is, True. I'd rather not talk about it. (laughs) Rarely 
rarely, 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 rarely do I like what I see when the Lord brings stuff out of me that I either didn't know was there or thought I had dealt with. Rarely. I mean, that's... It's wonderful sometimes to see the progress you've made in some areas. That's, that's, that's great. But if you, you know, the Bible says, guard your heart with all, or keep your heart with all diligence. The Hebrew word is guard, protect. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. So if, 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 if no man knows his own heart, and the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, I search the heart, I try the reins. And David prayed this way in Psalms 139. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. Well, I understand what David prayed. And, but you have to interpret what he was praying, not what he was actually saying. The Lord doesn't have to test him to know what's in his heart. The Lord knows what's in our heart. So what he was really praying was, Lord, get this now. Here's a man after God's heart. He said, test me, Lord, so that I can know about me what you know about me. I may not like it, but I can't deal with what I don't know about. So David was saying, search me, O Lord. Help me to know my heart. Try me. And help me to know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So my question to you is, what is your attitude about the situations and circumstances that the Lord puts you in where you begin to see your thoughts? To see what's in your heart. Because out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaking. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I've been around people and I've had it sometimes in my life where when I, what, what came out of my mouth was the most powerful message ever preached to me because it got me really praying. I go, where, where did that come from? I didn't even know I felt like that. I, I didn't even know that was in me. Where, where did that come from? And after you, after that's kind of out of your mouth, kind of projectile vomited it out. You ever been in that situation? I'm talking about with words, not physically, but it's just like that. It's just, you thought you were just a little sick and you begin to regurgitate words out of the abundance of your heart. You didn't even know your heart had that kind of abundance. And it's just a projectile vomiting of words. And you go, whoa, I remember when Esther was a little baby and uh, jo- Joel was holding her, he was still a teenager. And uh, we didn't know she was sick. <laughs> it's funny now. It wasn't funny then, boy. I tell you what. <laughs> she projectile vomited on him and just covered him from head to toe. It was just, ah, it was all over. <laughs> well, I've had people do me that way. But wasn't with vomit. Vomit, well, you can clean off. Vomit leaves a little smell, but you wash the clothes and you, 
you take a shower and use enough good smell or whatever, and you can kind of get get the smell of that out of your nose. But when somebody projectile vomits words on you, they don't stay on the surface. And now I've got to deal with them in here. I've got to deal with them in here. Because it's bad enough to have stuff in my heart that's me. But for me to allow you or give you permission to take your stuff in your heart and you put that stuff in my heart, now I've got a real problem. It's hard enough from a human standpoint to believe for God to help you with the stuff that's in your heart. But to have to try to let him help you with stuff that somebody else has vomited into your life, that's a completely different story. And excuse the language, I'm not trying to be crude. I'm just, it's just not a very pleasant illustration, but a very effective one. I've uh, been in some very awesome situations here this year, some things I've been really privileged to be a part of. I've, uh, I have personally uh, officiated in the ordination of three bishops so far, and I've got uh, six more to do before the summer's out. And uh, it's just... It's just really an amazing thing to experience that. Just amazing. I thought I had that volume turned off. Oh, it is. Your iPad volume is not the same as your volume. Yeah, volume, volume. Yeah, it's mute. Did you hear my notification? Okay. I've been really privileged to be a part of that. And uh, it's very humbling. And a, and a great honor to be asked to do that and be able to experience that and to feel the tremendous, the tremendous witness of the Holy Ghost in, in all that. It's just an amazing thing. And uh, I, have, I have said to every one of these bishops so far in my message before the laying on of hands that when you become a bishop it uh, changes everything it changes everything and it just shocked me when this was coming out of my mouth and and after i thought of what came what came out i i i realized it was really true uh I really realized, looking back on my life, how true it was. That the number one thing that changes after you're ordained a bishop is now the number, the most significant thing God focuses on in the life of a bishop is him dying. Just dying, 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 dying. You've heard me say it more than likely. It's one thing to be saved. Most people, all they do is focus on their own salvation. Other people want to be used. People pray and fast and seek God to be mightily used of God.
with the, with the greatest challenge that God has in the life of any human being is to save them after they've been greatly used. Because when you've been greatly used, there's all kind of stuff happens. And people are people. They, don't, they mean well, but, you know, most of the time it's difficult for people. People are either going to blame you or give you the credit. And 99% of the time, neither one of those is true. Honestly. So, and, and I'm communicating with these bishops that because God is so amping up a greater impartation of authority in your life, and he's going to do things through you that are just absolutely amazing, to keep you saved... He is going to focus on leading you through paths to help you die and die and die and die. If you want to be used of God, you can't resist the situations that God's put you in to help you die. Scripture says, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the problem. You can't crucify yourself. Peter preached to the crowd on the day of Pentecost, you have murdered You've killed, you've murdered the just one. Crucifixion was murder. So God didn't crucify the man Christ Jesus. Because God's not a murderer, that's the devil. He's the father of murder. Lies and murders. And if crucifixion was murder, then if I crucify myself, that's suicide. So I can neither crucify myself nor is God going to crucify me? So therefore, what is he going to do? What's he going to do? He's going to let me walk through circumstances and situations that if I submit to them, they will crucify me. If I resist them, I will die. Do you hear what I said? If I submit to crucifixion, I will live. If I resist crucifixion, I will die. No, no, brother, right? It's the other way around. If you submit to crucifixion, you're going to die. If you resist it, you live. Oh, no, 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 no. Because if you save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, you save it. So if you submit to crucifixion, you live. If you resist crucifixion, you die. Hello. I know this is probably not the most popular topic I could have talked about. But that's only because we have knowledge here. We don't have it here yet. I resisted. There, there were times, situations, you know, 
for every one of us. We've all been in situations at some point in our walk with God when things were so bad that we, we really did, we either had to just walk away from God or we had to come to the end of ourselves enough to allow God to work it, that thing out in our lives. So, were there days, were there times that I died out to Christ over the years? Absolutely, many times. But I was never dead. I died out to a situation. I died out to a circumstance. I died out out of desperation because I needed God's help or because I, I really wanted to go to the next level in Him and, and whatever. But when, when Jesus said it this way, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Those are not the same thing. Those are not two degrees of the same thing. Those are two different things. When you come to the Lord, repent of your sins, go through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel, He gives you life. But some point in the process of living that life, you have to die again to have abundant life. Paul said, I travail in birth again for you till Christ be formed in you. So in this first go-around of the first being born again, I was taken out of sin, I was brought as a spiritual infant into the body of Christ, and now I'm living in the body of Christ. But there comes a point as I'm growing in God, as it comes a point as I'm maturing in God, as God is teaching me things and doing things in my life, there comes a point where I've got to go through another death, burial, and resurrection, so to speak. I've got to go through another death. I know exactly when mine took place. It was on the third Friday night of August 2003 in a little church in Attleboro, Massachusetts. I died many times. God had used me. The Lord had used me, you know. I mean, that's no secret. That's not overstating it, understating it. The Lord had used me for years. There had been many great things God had done uh, here and other places and used me as the earthen vessel for his treasure to operate. But, but there's something else needed to happen. Something else needed to happen in my life. There needed to be some kind of crisis that took me to another level altogether. And, of course, the evidence of that crisis over there what I'm not saying all of that happened just for me, but the part, the way it applied to me is this way. <laughs> when uh, we couldn't get out of our house and Brother Whaley came and picked my wife and I and Joel up and we couldn't get up the road, we parked down in the, the uh, parking lot of the the post office and walked up Old Frederick Road. And when we got up high enough, the trees and the snow along the road, that would, of course, as you know, it's down in a, uh, down in embankments is an old road. When we got up far enough, we could see that building collapsed. Uh, the first thing that happened was I went into shock and just began to do what needed to be done. But after a couple of months when everything I could do was done and, I couldn't stay busy enough. 
uh, I went into deep, deep depression, discouragement. The Lord was merciful enough when it was time to lead and preach that the Spirit of the Lord and the anointing would come and help me. But during that period of time, boy, it was it was really difficult. It was, boy, I'd never been through anything like that in my entire life. It was just, it, the whole future, everything looked bleak. It just all looked bleak to my humanity. In the spirit, I had faith, but in, in my humanity, my emotions, it was all bleak. And... uh this went on May, June, July, and there was a manifest meeting that I'd agreed to do in Attleboro, Massachusetts for New England. And uh, I, that was a good excuse to get out of town, excuse me, but I just, I had, I don't believe I'd been out of town before then, and so here we go, and, um, Brother Shatwell and Brother Franklin Howard were going to participate with me in that meeting. And I was so down, I said to myself, I'm going to go to this meeting and I'll emcee it, but I am not preaching. I don't want to preach. I don't feel like preaching. I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do it. And I get there and for better or for worse, they'd talk between each other and they knew how bad off I was. And so they made up their mind they weren't preaching. And that I was going to do all the preaching. I huffed and puffed and couldn't blow the house down. I fussed. And they both said to me, you can, you can do it one of two ways. Either you can do the preaching and we'll stay here to support you, encourage you. Uh, or if you refuse to listen to us, we're going to go get on an airplane and leave you here by yourself. Your choice. Which is it going to be? What choice? There's no choice. <laughs> I, you know, I don't call that a choice, you know. Now, if it's the choice between chocolate ice cream or chocolate cake, now that's a choice, but they didn't give me a choice. There was no choice. So I, at this meeting, I refused to speak at. I spoke seven times. And what was really irritating, because the only way I know to minister is hear and repeat, to stand there while the Lord talks to you and you preach to yourself out of your own mouth because that's what you're hearing and now that's what you're saying that wasn't, that's just, I mean, he's just beating my brains out because I, I just, you know, he is working me over. So on Friday night after the last service, after all the teaching was done, all the ministry was done, I, I, we, I, you know how I do in those, I had a little stand down here and I walked over in the corner of this little building. Got down on my knees and said, okay, Lord, you've just been all week talking to me. And right now it's you and I. Here we are. What's going to happen here? And it was that night in that spot on that floor that was the first time I could truly say I was crucified with Christ. 
Paul knew he was crucified with Christ. That night, I knew I was crucified with Christ. And rather it being this horrible thing I thought it was going to be, it was the most awesome thing that ever happened to me, and it made me mad. I wasn't mad at God. I was mad at me and mad at the devil because he had been trying to make me believe all these years that being crucified with Christ was a very undesirable thing. That it wasn't desirable. It was not desirable. Because if I, if I just gave up to God and gave him complete control, wherever you're sending me, I'm going. Whatever you tell me to say, I'm, I'm saying. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm doing. I'm not going where you don't send me. I'm not saying what you don't tell me to say. I'm not doing what you don't tell me to do. I'm yours. I don't belong to me anymore. I'm yours. Take me. The result of that was a manifestation of abundant life like I didn't even, had no idea it was possible. From that night, To this day, I do not live with pressure in my life. Absolutely. I got that revelation that night. That pressure was proof I was still alive. Anybody listen to that? Pressure proves I'm still alive. Pressure proves I'm still trying to handle my troubles and problems myself. If I feel any pressure in here. I'm not talking about circumstances that are pressurized, but... If I don't allow any of that to be internalized in here, then I'm dead to, dead to self, crucified with Christ. But if I feel any pressure in here, I'm not dead. So any time since that day, the last Friday, the Friday of the third week of August of, 19, of 2003, since that day, at any moment I began to feel pressure over a situation, I immediately Begin to pray and cast it on him because I'm not in control. He is. Here it is. Here it is, Lord. Here it is. I'm not in control. You are. I cast it on you. What brought me to that point were circumstances that kept showing stuff in my heart and life. And and, the, and losing that building was something I could not shake. I, spiritually, I, I, when I when I had to, I could function spiritually for however long I had to function spiritually. But when the anointing would lift, I would go right back into this deep hole that it didn't feel like there was any way out of. And yet, God used all of that to bring me to the place. That I could truly be dead and therefore truly live. And you have to be patient with the process. You can run, but you can't hide. You can run, but you can't hide. I say that to you again. You can run, but you can't hide. Because trust me, if you can run and he lets you run, he's done with you. My spirit will not always strive with man. If God lets you run, 
and everything works out for you and life gets good, you've just been rejected by God. Because you can run from God, but if he's determined to work in your life, if, you, if he still has any hope of saving you, you can't hide. And he's really a persistent person. He's very persistent. He's far more persistent than we have any, any ability to be ourselves. Why? Because he loves us that much. He loves us that much. But let me, let me say to you this way. It's not just about love. I've been in a situation several times in my life where the Lord trusted me to be an instrument to save a ministry for the purposes of his kingdom. Yes, I loved the people that were in trouble. I loved them. I loved them spiritually. I loved them naturally. Uh, friends, brothers, sisters, whatever. And I not only wanted to help them naturally, but I wanted to help them spiritually. I had a spiritual compassion for them. And... <laughs> The Lord allowed me to be involved in their lives. And I, I wanted to see their marriages or their personal salvation work out. I wanted them to be saved. But in several situations I've been involved in, the number one goal I had wasn't just the salvation of a human being's soul. It was a ministry. I wanted to see that ministry. I believed God trusted me to be an instrument to see that ministry preserved for the kingdom. Because if things went the way they were going, the, the kingdom was going to be deprived of that very critical ministry. And you have to understand... That he called you. He prepared you. He brought you to him. He called you. He prepared you. He brought you to him. No man comes to the Father. Except the Spirit draws him. You can't take the credit for being saved. He draws you. He created you. He, he prepared you. He gave you a certain personality. He gave you certain talents and giftings. You may use them for your own benefit, and that's okay as long as that's secondary to the purpose of the kingdom. It's okay to, to use your talents for the benefit of your wife and your child, or your husband and your children. It's okay to use those talents and abilities to, to make an income sufficient, to be able to take care of your, your, your needs, your responsibilities, and that, to be able to, to, to be able to give. That's okay. But God gave you all of that first and foremost for His eternal plan and purpose. He gave all that to you first and foremost for His kingdom's sake. And so while He wants to save you, 
That is by far not the only reason he works in your life. And he leads every one of us through very deep valleys and difficult things at times. Not trying to break us, not trying to destroy us, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us. But I said to a person just yesterday, I don't know why you think what you're going through is so unusual. Of the Son of God Himself, the book says, though He were a Son, and might I also add a sinless Son, yet learned He obedience through the things which He suffered. So I'm asking you, if the sinless Son of God had to learn obedience through suffering, then why would you question God's love in what he's allowed you to go through? The circumstances and situations that he's allowed you to be in. Well, he's not the one that made this one do that and this one do that and the way it's affected me. No, he may not be the one that did all that, but he did he know in advance it was coming your way? Absolutely he did. No, he's not the one that did it, but he's the one that allowed it. Well, I don't like that. I'm sorry you don't like that. Sorry you don't like that. But let me tell you something. Every deep valley I walk through, every difficult time, every, every desperate hour I live through, I promise you there will be a day that he will use that work in my life, if I allow it, to bless and help somebody in the kingdom. There is nothing I go through as a child of God that doesn't have worth and value as long as I belong to Him. Nothing. No matter how painful is it at the time, no matter how convinced you are, you can't make it through this. No matter how, how much you're sure that your life is over, there's nothing He allows you to walk through that he doesn't intend to take that experience and what it works in your life to use for the glory of his kingdom and for the for the, the edification of his kingdom, the glory of his name sometime. And if you don't understand that, and you don't see that, and you can't receive that, then you have no way to explain what's going on in your life. Because trust me, I said to a lady sitting in her chair today while she cut my hair, I said, I'm going to tell you something right now. God orchestrates things to give every one of us a chance and to give people a chance through us. He orchestrates it. Even when you have no idea, he's behind it. Even when you didn't hear a still small voice, you're not feeling leading the direction of the Spirit. You're not feeling peace. God is involved because ultimately he wants to see his kingdom edified and his name glorified and that's not because he's an egomaniac that's because he's god and he deserves every bit of that so (laughs) what what a god that can take even my failures no matter how public they may be and do something awesome for the kingdom out of that two guys both failed God in the same situation. 
but their eternities were determined by their reaction to their failures in that situation. One denied the Lord and betrayed Him. The other denied the Lord and repented. And one hung himself and he went to hell, Judas, and the other repented and was the preacher on the day of Pentecost, not even 50 days afterwards. They both denied the Lord. They both fell. They both both did something that would be considered terrible. Peter, with all his boasting, he walks away out of self-preservation because he is not willing to risk whatever he thinks may happen at that point. It ends up weeping bitterly. And when Jesus shows up on the shore, and they've been fishing all night, didn't catch anything, and he said, children, have you any meat? No, we've toiled all night, caught nothing. And he says, cast down your nets for a great draught. And they did. And the moment Peter saw those nets full, he left them with his fellow sailors, dove in the water and swam to shore to get there, to fall down on his knees in front of the Savior and say, depart from me, I'm a wicked man. I'm a sinful man. And the Lord didn't say, you're right. Get out of here. I'm done with you. No, 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 no. No, he didn't do that at all. Because what did he say? Oh, somebody listen to me. What did he say before all that started? Before he was taken and crucified. What did he say? Simon, Simon. Satan hath desired to have you. That he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. That's a lesson you could teach for weeks off that one verse right there. But the point very briefly is, in my last few minutes of this lesson, the point very briefly is, the Lord knew what was coming before it did. It wasn't prophecy. It wasn't said out of spite. I'll never deny you, Peter. Before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. The Lord knew what was coming. Why? Because he allowed it. But he didn't. Is the Lord no respecter of persons? If he prayed for Peter, you you don't think his prayers work for us if we allow them to? I prayed for you that your faith fail not. Wait. Peter denied the Lord. He abandoned him in his hour of need. Is it that his faith failing? No, that was his flesh failing. His faith didn't fail. And how do we know his faith didn't fail? Because when he came to himself, he went and repented. Judas's faith failed. Peter's did not. And he said, when you're converted... And that word convert there doesn't mean being saved from being lost in this context. But when you come to yourself and you change your direction and, and, and you get back in accordance in line with me, I want you to strengthen your brother. Wait a minute. The guy who failed like that is now going to be the conduit for strengthening his brethren? Yes. Yes. So you can wallow in your failures all you want. That's your choice. But let me tell you something. Wallowing your failures, no matter how bad they are, is never going to help you or anybody else. 
But if you allow the Lord to open your eyes and your heart and see you in all those situations, it brings your heart to the surface. There will be a point where when the trial is over with, the test is done, when the message has been delivered and you've gotten it, he turns that all around and now it's going to be a blessing to you. I, I go places and preach, and I don't need notes. Why don't I need notes? Well, they think it's because I'm so smart. I've had people, oh, Brother Wright, I just don't have a brain like you. Really? You mean you've never had a, an experience that's so vivid you couldn't forget it if you wanted to? That's how, that's why I don't need notes. Because the Lord is speaking through me out of my experience to other people. I don't forget this stuff. I don't have to make notes on this. I don't have to make notes. I've experienced this. These are the, the answers I'm giving you. These are the answers he gave me so I could make it. I've been in situations where I'd go an hour and a half, two hours, and it's just just spewing the stuff out there, just just one thing after another. You can see people's eyes roll back in their head, and they're they're just overloaded and and, and, and they, they didn't know how they'll ever listen to all that. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, you have no idea how expensive each one of those little statements was that you dismiss and cram them all together. You have no idea. You can't ever, there's no way to communicate to somebody how, how expensive it was to learn that statement and, and how expensive it was to go through that so that you got this out of what you went through there you can't explain that to people so you don't try you just understand that everything you're sharing you received so you can't boast in it because you received it and why did i receive it i received it because i needed it i needed it and once i've received it freely receive freely give so that's all you do but in the process you find your place in the kingdom and God uses you for his purposes. And there's just, it's like pieces of a puzzle all falling into place. And you go, ah, that's what all of that was about. That's what all of that's been about. You let all this and this and this and this happen to bring me to this place. And in that situation, you can not only give thanks in everything, but you learn to give thanks for everything. If you can't learn to give thanks in everything, you'll never learn how to give thanks for everything. If you're bitter, upset, <laughs> you know, do unto others you'd have them do unto you, I guess God's not another, right? I want to treat God like I want him to treat me. <laughs> I want to give him some trust. I want to give him some credit. I want to give him some benefit of the doubt. I, I'm hoping I receive the same coming back. Don't you? Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness, mercy, for your love, your graciousness. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you. We thank you for all you've done, for all you're doing we know you're in control. We know your hand is on the fan and you're thoroughly purging your floor. We know that everything is up in the air because you're in control. We know that this is 
only a prelude of great things to come because of that. We thank you for all of that, Father. We thank you for it. We thank you for it. Commit every person in this place to you and everybody that is hearing this message or will hear this message at some point in the future. I commit them into your hands. I commit the word being sown in their hearts into your care. I trust you, Father, to protect that until you're able to create the right circumstances to cause it to germinate, grow, and be fruitful to the edification of your kingdom, the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, I bless these people by the authority that's been entrusted to me. In the name of Jesus, I bless this people. I bless this church. I bless these families. I bless the ministries of this church to fruitfulness. I speak grace and peace from the Father upon you. Grace, mercy, and peace from the Father upon you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God bless you. Thank you for your patience.